Well, we're going to be in the Old Testament and the book of Exodus. So if you do have a Bible, uh, if you want to turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 32. 32, Exodus chapter 32. You know, I've been working through Exodus, and I want to kind of review where we are up to in chapter 32. Moses, the prophet of God, has been on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights meeting with God. He has heard God's law. He's he's received God's law. He's seen the plans for God's holy tabernacle. And now it's time for the prophet of God to go back down the mountain. Well, then God breaks the news to him that while the two of them have been drawing up plans for the new sanctuary, the Israelites down at the bottom of the mountain have been making some plans of their own. At this very moment, under the direction of the associate shepherd, Moses' brother Aaron, they are offering ungodly worship to an unholy cow. Moses has been gone only a few weeks, and already these people are turning away from God. The Lord brought them out of Egypt to worship him, but now they've decided to go back to the Pharaohs and their gods. Now what had Israel done, just to sum it up real quickly, they had corrupted themselves. They had turned aside quickly from God's commands. They had made for themselves a golden calf. They had worshipped the golden calf. They had sacrificed to the golden calf. And they said, regarding this golden calf, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. The, the Israelites had been the recipients of immense blessing, deliverance, provision, the law, the covenant. And now they turn to a golden calf. You know, quite possibly God is ready to unleash his anger. But Moses intercedes. Moses was driven by God to intercede. And he did intercede. You know, one of the things that I mentioned the last time I spoke was that a big part of interceding for others is learning to care about people. It's a way of loving your neighbor as yourself. But the big takeaway from my, from the last time I spoke was this, is that prayer, and we focused last time on Moses' prayer, prayer is not learning how to get God to give us things we want. Prayer is about learning how to ask God for the things he already wants to give us. But now that we're caught up, I want us to kind of focus in Exodus 32, beginning with verse 15. Now, it's interesting. The Bible, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the Bible is full of great sounds. Have you ever thought about the sounds in the Bible? Think of the noise that Gideon and his soldiers made when they attacked the Midianites. The blaring trumpets smashing the pots. The battle cries. Or think of the sounds that David's soldiers made when they attacked the Philistines. Or the sound of God's army marching in the treetops. The sound that Elijah heard on God's mountain. The wind, the earthquake, the fire. The still, small voice. And that's just in the Old Testament. In the Gospels too. Animals lowing in the stable. Water splashing in jugs of wine. Splashing in, in jugs. Wind storming over the lake and then getting calm. Silver coins clinking in a bag. Cries of anguish on a cross. 
at the end of the days will be the happiest sounds of all though the trumpet of God the last shout of victory the chorus of heaven but in Exodus 32 here there is a there's another sound here and Moses and Joshua hear it as they're going back down the mountain and it's a strange sound at first that Joshua wasn't even sure of what it was so again Moses had been meeting with God up on the mountain and the last thing that God had told Moses was to go down because the Israelites are worshiping a golden calf and so Moses turned and went down from the mountain I'm reading in verse 15 here and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand the tablets were written on both sides they were written on one side and the other now the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets so Moses was carrying the two tablets bringing them down to place them in the Ark of the Covenant the tablets as it says were double-sided inscribed front and back with the words of the Ten Commandments now if you notice the Bible emphasizes here that these commandments came from God both the tablets and the writing on them were God's handiwork so when Moses brought them down from the mountain we're to understand this was not Moses's <coughs> law this was God's law the law was never man's word about God but God's word to man and this is why it is still binding on us today you know, when the church teaches that it is wrong to lie wrong to steal wrong to murder wrong to bear false witness wrong to desire what your neighbor has it's not because Christians have a bunch of weird hang-ups it's because these are divine commands that come with the full weight of God's authority and knowing that this law comes from God helps us to understand Exodus 32 these tablets that Moses held in his hands of course included the first two commandments you shall have no other gods before me you shall not make for yourself an idol and guess what <laughs> these were the very things that the Israelites were busy doing when Moses came down so it wasn't just Moses they had to deal with it was God who had given the law and so on his way down Moses rejoined uh, joined up with Joshua so as Moses had been going up the mountain Joshua was a, was accompanying him and about halfway up Moses says you are to wait here until I return and so Joshua the faithful man that he was had been waiting there patiently for Moses to return so when the two of them continued on down the mountain and got within hearing distance of the camp of Israel there was a sound that Joshua couldn't quite make out the Israelites were making some kind of noise so this is verse 17 then Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted and he said to Moses there's the sound of war in the camp now this of course you've got to understand spoken like a true general because Joshua was a military man so naturally his thought is going to go wow this has something to do with warfare maybe this noise indicated that God's people were fiercely opposing the enemies of God maybe they were celebrating victory over an enemy of God but what he thought was perhaps the sound of victory celebration which would have been a positive thing was actually the noise of unholy ungodly sacrilegious worship and Moses knew the difference as we move on to verse 18 verse 18 should almost be read with a tone of lament you know Joshua's untrained ear 
needed more discernment to properly identify what was happening. Moses did have that that necessary discernment. He correctly concluded that the sound was not the sound of people standing for the truth, but the sound of people at play, a disgraceful play. And it was not music to his ears. But Moses said, it is not the sound of the cry of triumph. It is not the sound of the cry of defeat. But it's the sound of singing that I hear. And there was a sadness as Moses said that. If you remember back when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, Moses himself had led singing. Back then, Moses and the Israelites were praising God. I will sing to Yahweh, for he is highly exalted. The horse and the rider he has hurled into the sea. But this time, this time, the Israelites were singing. Now get this. The Israelites were singing to a grass-eating, milk-producing, moo-sounding cow. Yes, doesn't that sound ridiculous? Someone would have to almost be drunk to worship such thing as a god. And they probably were because scripture says earlier, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And it wasn't just any type of play. It was raucous, indecent celebration. And so we can understand why Moses was grieved. The singing was not the kind that offered praise to God. It was the kind of religious singing that was offered to pagan deities. It was not the kind of singing that expressed godly joy, but the kind of singing that manifested a joyless, sensual pleading associated with idolatry. They may have sounded like they were happy and in a celebration, but the people had lost their joy in Yahweh. And idolatry always does that. And we don't know the specific content of this singing or the lyrics, but we do know that Moses was greatly disturbed by this. Whatever the content, whatever the tune, it struck Moses' God-tuned ears as dishonoring to God. And I'll tell you, if you think about this, this is something that we need. We need people in our lives who can discern when we have lost our joy. Because oftentimes, the evidence that the joy of the Lord is no longer our strength is the evidence that we've, is, is revealed when we've lost our joy. And we need God to be our strength. When we are merely going through the motions, we need discerning brothers and sisters, discerning shepherds who will come along beside us and say, hey, that singing that's coming from you, that's not authentic. We need discerning husbands, discerning wives, parents that can detect the difference between just a noise and a joyful noise. We we need to train our ears to detect the joyful noise. And that requires time in the presence of God. We need to become the people who can discern and will not be deceived by something that sounds noble or sounds righteous, but is actually evidence of evil. And we need people in our lives that have the ability to discern that which is irreverent, that which is worldly, that which is idolatrous. So Moses and Aaron coming into the camp. You know, sooner or later, God will confront our sins just as Moses confronted the Israelites. Now, out of his great, great mercy, 
And on the basis of his covenant, God had already decided not to destroy the Israelites. However, their sin needed to be dealt with in a godly way. And that means they were going to have to face the consequences of their sin. And this is always necessary. Forgiveness removes the guilt of sin, but not the consequences. And nor should it. Because God uses the consequences of our sin in a sanctifying way. Teaching us to never do it again, hopefully. So dealing with the sin here, dealing with this effectively, takes the kind of godly leadership that Moses exhibited. And as he saw what the people were doing, he took action. We're in verse 19 now. Now it happened as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hand and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which had been made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. Whoa. I mean, it's, it's one thing, think about this, it's one thing to be told that the Israelites, what they were doing, and to hear their laughter, but it was another thing when Moses saw it with his own eyes. There was the calf, a golden abomination, and there were the people dancing around it. And when Moses saw everything going on in the camp, he was so angry that he smashed the Ten Commandments to pieces. He ground the golden calf into dust, mixed it with water, and made the people drink it. As you read that, you go, was that the right thing to do? Was Moses justified? Or did he just lose his temper? Now, there are at least two evidences that Moses was right in doing this, that this was justified. And one very simple one was that God did not rebuke Moses for this action. There was another occasion that God did rebuke Moses in a place called Kadesh, when the Israelites had run out of water. As usual, when the people didn't have what they needed, they blamed Moses. They complained. And on that occasion, Moses was so fed up with their grumbling and complaining that he lashed out. He spoke angry words and struck the rock in fury. Moses was angry for himself, though, and not for God. And so God punished Moses for his sin. And that was severe. He did not allow Moses to enter the promised land. But God did not punish Moses for the way he dealt with the golden calf. So what Moses did was right. And in verse 19, where the Bible says that Moses' anger burned, this is the very same phrase that was used earlier in verse 10 when God had threatened to destroy the Israelites. And so there is a kind of a language linking between those two phrases. They both responded to Israel's sin with the same type of anger. So this was righteous anger. Now remember, Moses had just spent 40 days in the presence of the glorious almighty God. Now, after nearly six weeks of being exposed to the presence of God, to the revelation of God, imagine what the sight of such a uh, ungodly behavior would have stirred up in Moses. I mean, that would have stirred up righteous indignation in Moses. And Moses had just been on the mountaintop interceding for the people, which resulted in their deliverance from God. And God had shown incredible mercy and loving kindness to them. And now Moses was confronted with a scene in which this merciful, wonderful God was being mocked. 
righteous indignation to idolatry is the only legitimate response for those who love their God. You know, is it possible that one reason we may be content with golden calves in our own lives, in our society, possibly even in our church, is because we've lost our love for God? We've lost our love for the revelation of God? Is it possible that we are too comfortable? That we are unperturbed with the behavior that we see around us? Because we've lost sight of the glorious grace of the gospel? Are we at the point where we maybe we don't despise but don't value the riches of his goodness and his forbearance and his long suffering that we don't value that enough knowing that goodness of God leads to repentance and we're valuing the golden idols more than than that and if you weigh it out how many of you have ever gotten angry in your life yeah yeah but how much of that anger would you say has been righteous indignation yeah i I guess i would argue much of our anger is probably unrighteous like moses at kadesh we get more frustrated with something or someone until finally the anger raging inside us strikes out. But that anger does not come from a zeal for God or a zeal for God's glory. It's all about us and what we're not getting. And I'll tell you, one evidence of idolatry in our own hearts, mine included, is what angers us. Are we angered over being slighted by others? Are we angered because we got cut off in traffic? Are we angered because we did not get our way? Or are we angered because as we look around us, God is not getting His way? If we are truly, righteously angered for the glory of God, then we would be praying, Lord, have Your way. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But in his anger, Moses did not sin. He did take decisive action. And the first thing he did was dash the tablets to the ground. Now, if he had done this in a fit of rage, that would have been a sin. I mean, these are the tablets created, written by God himself. And Moses broke these tablets, but he broke them as a prophetic act. You know, in the Old Testament, prophets would often do things in public to symbolize Israel's relationship with God. And so later on, when Moses recounted this incident, he, he would say, and I took hold of the tablets and threw them from my hands and shattered them before your eyes. You know, there at the foot of the mountain, the very place where the Israelites had sworn to do everything God had said, the prophet very clearly demonstrated that they had broken the law almost as soon as it had been given. It was, in one way, it was saying, if the Israelites were not prepared to obey the law, that they didn't even deserve it. You see, by breaking the tablets, Moses showed the Israelites that they had broken the entire law. As the Bible says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of it all. (laughs) And the Israelites were stumbling at more than one point. But the principle applies by worshiping the golden calf They had broken the entire law of God. Broken. 
over idolatry. God's law had been broken. This is why Moses cast the tablets on the ground and broke them. Moses was proclaiming that the people of God were not covenant keepers, but covenant breakers. Because the Hebrews had shattered the covenant with Yahweh, Moses shattered the sign of the covenant before their very eyes. And it's teaching us something as well. You know, God is teaching us through this that to commit the sin in this case, to commit the sin of idolatry, well, that is to disregard, to dishonor, and to disobey God's revealed doctrine. God's teaching us that if idolatry is to be defeated, then we must confront it with his revelation, with his truth as revealed in his word. You see, our hearts, our hearts need to be moved by the fear of the Lord. Our hearts need to be broken and righteously indignant towards a world that defies our faithful and loving God and Creator. Think of Paul in Athens like that. Our hearts should be stirred, so stirred by the idolatry that we see around us that we are moved to fearlessly proclaim the gospel as has been commanded to us to call all men to repent. You know, Moses must have been quite a leader especially if you contrast him to Aaron. Moses had no fear of man. Moses had zero tolerance in his approach to idolatry. Moses took that disgusting golden calf, destroyed it. He burned it. He pulverized it. He liquefied it. And then he made the people drink it. You know, that must have been quite a, quite a scene. You've got, got to ask, what was the purpose for this action? I think in a very practical sense, Moses was putting a bitter taste in their mouths with regard to idolatry. He wanted to impress upon them that idolatry is unpalatable in a sense. He wanted to humble them in such a way that they would think twice before doing such a disgusting thing. He wanted them to taste the shame that accompanies idolatry. He wanted them to taste the consequences of sin so they would steer clear of it. He wanted them to see the foolishness of this idolatry. I mean, he wanted to impress upon them the truth that if they could drink this God that they were worshiping, it obviously was not much of a God. I mean, something that can be digested isn't much of a much of a God, is it? He wanted to get that through their heads of what folly that this had been. He wanted to impress upon them that this idol could not satisfy at all. You see, idols are not to be tolerated. Idols are not to be tolerated. They are to be annihilated. We need to do this with our own idols, whatever they may be. And we are all idolaters at one point or another. Uh, A.W. Pink described an idol as this. Anything which displaces God in my heart. It may be something which is quite harmless in and of itself, yet if it absorbs me, if it be given first place in my affections and my thoughts, it becomes an idol. It may be my busyness. It may be a loved one. It could even be my service for Christ. But anything 
that comes into competition with the Lord's ruling me in a practical way is an idol. So we have to ask the question, is there anything that displaces God in our hearts? Is there anything that competes with Him for our attention? What do we desire? What do we praise? What do we think about? What do we pursue? These are the things that replace God in our hearts. And the only safe way to get to deal with them is to get rid of them altogether. Now, one question that confronts us if we examine ourselves and say, Lord, there are idols in my heart, is how do we deal with it? I think all too often we try to deal with idols, with things that take us away from our, take our focus away from God by simply putting them in a closet. We're going to clean up this room. We're just going to put it in the closet. So we put it in a closet rather than taking out the trash. We pretend that we've cleaned house, spiritually speaking, when all we've done is hidden it out of sight for the moment. But the fact is that that sin is still lurking in the closet, ready to come out the next moment we're tempted to open the door. You know, Moses' response was to give insight. His, his response gives us insight into how, what a godly response should be. He sought to wipe it out with a decisive blow. He was offended by the ascent, by sin on the account of the glory of God and would not rest until it was dealt with. <laughs> Moses never gave the Israelites a chance to go back to that golden calf. And so in that same way, if we do examine ourselves and say that we have idols of the heart, we need to grind our idols down until they turn to dust. Don't keep dabbling with the idols. Destroy them. Moses confronted the sin of idolatry head on. And, interestingly, he made no excuses about it, and he left no one off the hook, including his brother. Now, sooner or later, we all have to take responsibility for what we have done. And when it came to Israel and the golden calf, there was one man who had to take more responsibility than anyone else. Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, who God had left in charge. So then, this is verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you've brought such great sin upon them? You, Moses almost seems a little bit sympathetic. He knows what the Israelites are like. And so he had some idea of what Aaron was up against. But how did they get him to do something so wicked? I mean, Moses assumed they must have done something like threaten his life. But Moses also held Aaron fully responsible. Calling this golden calf a great sin, Moses put the blame right where it belonged. No matter what the people had done, Aaron had no excuse. He had to take full responsibility for what had happened. At this point, Aaron should have made a full confession. When, when Moses came to confront him, Aaron should have said, It doesn't matter what they did to me, Moses. I was the one who led them into sin. I was their spiritual leader, and so it was up to me to help them worship the one true God. Forgive me. The golden calf was all my fault. That would have been the correct response. But was that the response that Aaron gave? No, far from it. Instead, I think Aaron responds just like we would tend to respond. And Aaron said, Don't let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself. They are prone to evil. Indeed, they said to me, Make gods for us who will go before us. 
For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of, of him. And I said to them, whoever has gold, let him tear it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. You know, Aaron's, I guess, half-hearted act of repentance teaches us how not to confess our sins. There's at least three problems with his confession. And the first was telling his accuser to back off. I mean, Moses was there for Aaron's benefit. He was confronting him with his sin so that he could receive forgiveness. But Aaron tried to turn it against Moses. He's like, back off, man. Little brother, don't get so upset. It's no big deal. You know, by telling Moses not to get angry, Aaron made it sound like Moses is the one who had the problem. He was trying to appease Moses without addressing the real issue, which was the wrath of God against sin. And sadly, this is, I think, what happens so many times when people are confronted with sin. They turn it against those who are confronting them. What's your problem? Why are you making such a big deal out of this? They turn the confronting of sin into a personal issue. And sometimes they would accuse the accusers, complaining about the way they're being confronted. Sometimes they would try to placate the accusers without making a full confession of sin. And their goal is to get the people to just leave them alone instead of actually dealing with the sin. And this is what Aaron was doing. Instead of saying, brother, I have sinned against God, he just going, now, now just don't get angry. Well, the second problem was that Aaron was trying to blame others for what he had done. Well, Moses, Moses, you know these people, you know how they are. I realize you've been gone a long time, only 40 days. You've been gone a long time, and maybe you've forgotten how bad these people are, but they sin a lot. And by the way, may I point out that you being gone so long didn't help matters. And then Aaron proceeded to explain, when Moses failed to return, the people demanded a new deity. And Aaron tried to say it, to exonerate himself and says, well, the people made me do it. And again, do you recognize this? This is what people do when they're confronted with sin. First, they tell people to back off. Then they will shift the blame. There's always somebody else to blame. My parents didn't love me growing up. You know, my boss doesn't treat me fairly. He was yelling at me. She pushed me. He pushed me. They went behind my back. Everyone else is doing it. Excuses. Excuses. Now, usually there is some truth in excuses. Of course there is. People sin all the time, often in ways that tempt us to sin. And this is what happened to Aaron. So what he said really was true as far as it went. And Moses knew it was true. And no one knew it was true better than Moses. But you've got to understand that what the people were doing was irrelevant to the issue at hand, which was Aaron's own personal sin. You can't shift the blame. No matter how much pressure he was under, he could have resisted with God's help. God would have helped him to do what is right. And so Aaron had to take the blame. Remember, when it comes to our sin, even if we are provoked, there is no one else to blame. This is something to remember when someone confronts us with our own sin. It's so easy to make excuses. It's so easy to find someone else or something else to blame. But when it comes to confessing our sin, all that is completely beside the point. 
what we ought to do is fully confess our sin and leave it at that. What we usually do is make a partial confession that is then clouded over with excuses and extenuating circumstances. Well, the third problem with Aaron's confession is kind of related to the second. He refused to admit what he had done. Not only did he blame others, but he lied about his involvement in the situation. If you, if you compare what God said was happening in uh, the first few verses of Exodus 32 with what Aaron said happened, it's an interesting comparison. Aaron, uh, uh, so God's version carefully explains that Aaron took the gold. He made an idol. He used a tool to carve it like a calf. Aaron built the altar. Aaron then organized the worship service of the golden calf. Well, Aaron's story about this was a bit shorter and left out a few details. You know, by the time Aaron leaves out all these incriminating details, all that's left to say is, so they gave it to me, the gold, I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Really, Aaron? Really? So at first Aaron said, the people made me do it, and now it's, the fire did it. You know... And, and I'm sure Moses just stood there with his mouth open going, do you expect me to believe that? And, and I guess in, in my mind, uh, in, I, I was kind of drawing up this picture of the carving tools, the, 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 where they had melted down the gold was probably off to the side somewhere. And Moses is looking at, at the, the, the uh, tools that he'd used to carve it, the uh, remains going, well, what's that, Aaron? I just threw it into the fire and the, it just came out like that. So when God tells the story, Aaron plays a starring role in the creation of the golden calf. But to hear Aaron tell the story, he's just a minor character in the whole thing. And he treated this golden calf like some kind of spontaneous miracle. Cow? What cow? Oh, Oh, that. Well, I've been wondering about that myself. How did that get here? It's unbelievable, Moses. I tell you, the people took off their jewelry, and the next thing you know, here's this cow. You know, idols are always man-made. But Aaron tried to make it sound like this one was self-produced. You know, Aaron put his own, we would call it, Aaron put his own spin on the story. But you know what? The Bible calls that lying. And it's another strategy that sinners often use to avoid confessing sin. We downplay the depravity. We minimize the wickedness of what we have done. When we explain what happened, we will conveniently leave out details that show us in a bad light. I'm not going to ask if you've ever done that. And to the extent that we admit that we did something wrong, well, we only tell our side of the story so that we don't look half as bad as it really was. We want to make sure people have the right interpretation of what happened. Our interpretation of it. And usually, of course, we are only fooling ourselves. Most of our excuses and our evasions are as obvious as Aaron's were. And the other people can see what we're trying to hide. Well, even if there are times when we can fool people about with all of our excuses, God never lets us get away with it. And he didn't let Aaron get away with it. You know, later on, God refers to Israel's idol as the calf which Aaron had made. How would you like for that to be your remaining reputation 
all the calf which Aaron made. And that stuck with me. You know, all of Aaron's desperate attempts to get Moses to back off, to shift the blame, to deny that he had done anything wrong, God stated very matter-of-factly that the sin belonged to Aaron all along. You know, idols, they have a way of shaping people. God made us to worship. Now, it may not be a golden calf or a statue, but the human heart has this need to be filled with something to cherish, to adore, to pursue, to love. The object can be anything. It can be immaterial, success at work, recognition from people, a life of ease. Whatever the search, the heart will begin to be shaped by that. You think about it for a minute. When Israel made for themselves a golden calf, they wanted gods to lead them. All right? Of course, the gods they followed shaped them in terrible ways. When Moses described what the Israelites were doing, they were described like wild cattle, broken loose and stiff-necked. So in a sense, they were described like cattle running wild. Whatever our sin or not, whether we admit our sin or not, God holds us accountable. And he knows that sin is not something that just happens that other people make us do. Here we go. Sin is what we choose to do out of the idolatry of our own sinful hearts. Let me say that one more time. Sin is what we choose to do out of the idolatry of our own sinful hearts. And so if this is true, then we need a way to own up to our own sin. We need to say, I am a sinner. I am the one who complains about the things God has not done for me. I am the one who takes what I want even though it doesn't belong to me. I am the one who gets mad on the driving to work and curses people under my breath. I'm the one who looks down at other people's weaknesses. I'm the one who exaggerates my own accomplishments. I'm the one who is bitter. I'm the one who cannot control my rage. I am the one who uses words to tear other people down. I am the one who commits the secret sin that nobody else sees. I am that sinner. We need to take the blame for our sin. We need to do it the way that David did. He said, For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. It is against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord, and have done evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak. And you are pure when you judge. We need to pray like the prodigal son when he went back home and said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. We need to pray like a tax collector at the temple who beat his own chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the reason that we have to take the blame for our own sin is this. Until we take full responsibility for our own sin, we cannot be saved. The scripture says salvation is for sinners. It is for the people who know how badly they have broken God's holy law. The saying is, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. This free gift of eternal life that we're called to proclaim is for sinners who confess their sins, admitting that they are unrighteous before a holy God. And you know what the exciting thing is? 
There's hope when we turn from our idols. There is a way for life to be restored that had been ruined by false worship. We have an advocate before the Father who pleads and atones for our sins when we confess and repent. Think about it. It was because of our idolatries that Jesus Christ drank the bitter cup of the Father's wrath. It was because of our idolatries that Jesus Christ, God's only Son, suffered and died on the cross. We're called to look at the cross and be thoroughly disgusted with our sin because that is the only antidote for the idols in our hearts. And the beauty, the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ is that He remakes us into His image. He takes a life that has been shaped by idols and He begins to form it in a way where we look increasingly like Him. He rescues us from false worship and gives us hearts that desire what He desires. The ruined is restored. And He can do this because He is Lord, sitting at the right hand of the Father. He intercedes for us and offers Himself for us. And for this reason, we're called to worship Him and worship Him alone. Let's pray. Lord, Father, we come before you and ask corporately for forgiveness for the idols in our lives. May we be broken hearted over idolatry in our culture and idolatry in our own lives. Show us our hearts and our sins. Help us to understand what our sins truly deserve. And then help us to understand how much we have been forgiven. I pray you would help us to be discerning husbands, wives, and parents. May our response to idolatry be righteous indignation. Rescue us, Father. Restore us and renew us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.